really got me in ham radio, and we didn't really get into this, was in seventh grade. It was really pivotal. My uncle gave me an old Helicrafters S38, oh. short radio, and I threw a wire up. You know, I, I just climbed the tree and threw a wire up and drilled the hole through the house, <laughs> put the wire through. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Hamdom Thoughts, a podcast about ham radio, electronics, software, and tinkering. I'm your host, Dennis, FCC licensed amateur extra radio operator, call sign 8060M. Today we talk with a ham friend of mine, AI6XG, Dan, who lives in the northern part of the greater Sacramento area, just like me. Dan is a hacker and a tinkerer who creates his own microcontroller-based gear. He also plays with radio on the mountains with summits on the air and Morse code. I met Dan at the CWOps CW Academy class, level two, and also at a local hamvention, which we call Pacificon. Later, he actually helped me on a soda peak my second ever. Let's talk to Dan now. Stay tuned. Hey, Dan. Great to see you again. How you doing? Yes, I'm doing great. It's really good to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we chat on JerryNet on the Slack quite often, but it's a rare chance that I get to see you face-to-face, and we're here on a Zoom call right now, so appropriate social distancing. (laughs) How's it going up there? In Northern Sac, I'm in the southern part of greater Sacramento area. So what, what are we like? Maybe 15, 20 miles apart? I think so. Something yeah. like that. By the way, the crow flies or the, the radio waves propagate. <laughs> and it's funny, too, because you always seem to, I guess you have a better antenna set up. You pick up all these soda activators, and I'm like, I can't hear a thing over here. <laughs> so I don't know what, what's going on with your antenna, your, your yeah. nice station. Um, and we've we've got the same rig too. Yes, that's true. I really up. I, I really need to up my antenna game like big time. Thinking of throwing a longer wire on my end fed and just putting it higher up so that I'm able to to pick up people better. Yeah, I think higher up is the key. There, I can. Well, we'll talk about it. Yeah. So. Yeah, we can, we can have about <laughs> everything here, but you know, I, I really like these podcasts that you're doing because I get to really learn a lot about the the hams that I just uh, see on JerryNet or that we chase or activate each other. So it's it's yeah. fun to really learn more about each other. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk to you in particular today because uh, I wanted to get your perspective on just being an active maker and hacker. You've got quite a few personal projects 
Uh, one of them being this really cool Arduino, and, or, well, is it Arduino? It's more of a Raspberry Pi-based UTC local time clock, very similar to something I saw from MFJ, which I actually have hanging in the garage. But this one is powered, um, well, it's, it's updated through the internet, and it shows me both UTC and local time. And you built this thing from scratch. But before we get into all that, let me give you the opportunity to talk about yourself, your interests, the makerspace, you know, just your background. So why don't, why don't you tell us a little more about you? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I'm not from California. I grew up in Wisconsin, and I was there through um, my undergraduate. So I went to school in Wisconsin. And, you know, really, I've been interested in making stuff, I think, from fifth or sixth grade, something like that. And, you know, early on, it was really more about tearing stuff apart and learning about it. And then I started just building things. And it was, it was fun. You know, it's an interesting story. When I, when I moved from uh, Wisconsin to my first job, I had like uh, 20, over 20 old TV chassis in my basement that I had to get rid of because that's what I used for all my parts and just to, just to learn. So it was good. So yeah, so went to school in Wisconsin. Um, you know, my education really wasn't engineering. I was uh, applied math and physics as a major. And it was a combination degree like that. And, and I took some engineering, but the engineering was in semiconductor physics and semiconductor processing. So as an undergraduate, I was making um, integrated circuits. So that's the industry I went into was semiconductors. So wow. we, were making, we were making the chips that makers use to make things. So oh, that I think is, that's, that's cool. Yeah, it was something that I wanted to do since seventh grade. It was, I, it was a really fun time to do. So what I um, really did was I worked in the quality and reliability aspect. Um, Adam is a quality engineer, so we have some common things. Mm -hmm. K6ARK. And um, especially at the beginning of my career, I worked in failure analysis. So when devices did not work, in our lab, we would strip them down and figure out why they didn't work. And that would, a lot of times you'd have to go down to the sub-transistor sub level and figure out what was wrong. So was, that was a lot of fun. And part of what I did was um, I had a lab that I put together that we had scanning electron microscopes so we could look at the parts in really high resolution and, and magnification. So really and, getting down in there and really blowing up the uh, image of these, these circuits, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So either we would strip layers away and look at the metal contacts or the individual transistors, or we'd even cross section. So if we had a particular area that we had concern about, we would just cross section into that area and we could look at the various aspects of the structure. Yeah. And I also did some work on, um, real high sensitivity uh, analysis of what kind of uh, elements were in the were in the chip so part per million part per billion type of analysis oh wow so that was that was fun but it was 
what I what I learned in school and what I really liked. But ham radio really taught me the the engineering, the electronics portion. So I could in school learn about the physics and the, how the devices actually work at a subatomic level. But I didn't have to learn the electronics because I already knew it from ham radio. But I did in ham radio, nice. and <laughs> it. it Ham radio is great, and I think kids should get into it just because they don't have to go to engineering school. They can just learn it on their own. Yeah, it's practical and it's applied almost immediately. Yeah, talking about applications, uh, in the labs, the technicians liked me as an engineer because I actually knew how to solder and put things together like they do. And a lot of engineers, when they get especially out of school, they've never really built anything. So they didn't know how to solder or put anything together and uh so the technicians like me but yeah another cool thing we did uh, real quick was with the scan electron microscope uh, we were in the first labs to do that we were able to use the electron beam to measure the voltages uh on the on a device so we would put a device in the sem we'd fire it up and we build it was a sample and hold type of thing and uh, we'd be able to figure out what the waveform was using an electron beam. Wow. So that's kind of So we were CW Ops classmates. It was CW Academy Level 2. And that's where I first saw you in a Zoom call. We hung out with Bob, K6RB, our instructor. Yeah. And, yeah, I remember struggling through that class because that was the class where we introduced... 25 words per minute and just the Morse runner and what is that other one? Rough ZXP and the assignments and having to translate things. And that was, that was a fun time. But then shortly after that, after the class ended, I think I posted that I was going to Pacificon and you reached out and said, well, I'm going too." this was in San Ramon in 2018 and it was nice to hang out with someone i thought it was cool that i would go to a conference for once and actually know someone there rather than just awkwardly looking at different trade show vendors and keeping to myself and maybe talking to people Uh, i mean that's kind of my typical conference experience (laughs) where i'm just i'm largely introverted when i'm in those huge settings so uh, it was cool to meet up with you, and we we talked quite a bit about soda. You showed me your KX2 kit. I ended up buying one of the Ed Fong J-Poles. But all that rambling just to say, yeah, I've, I've known you for a little bit, and it's been going on two-plus years now, and we also went on a trek together up Rag Ridge, but before I, we get to that that little interesting thing, I wanted to ask you how you started off in Summits on the Air, and also how that ties into your CW operation and our, your attendance in the class. Yeah, you know, well, maybe we can start even back. I've been a ham. I first got my license in 1973. Or 72, something oh, like wow. that. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm a really old guy. So I wasn't even born when you became a ham. Yeah, I know. Just <laughs> I don't want to emphasize the OM aspect, but just pointing that out. 
<laughs> Sorry, Dan. Oh. Well, that's okay. I'm I'm the old man of the, of Jerry Net. I know that. So it's all right. I don't think anybody else. Most of you guys <laughs> so, but back then, when you, I got my novice, it was five words per minute, and you know, I uh, my first transmitter was a little single tube transmitter, and then I built a a two tube transist, uh, transmitter. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I was also doing work with transistors and all that, but it was kind of fun to do that. But then, um, after I got, I had, I was novice through college. And then when I first got my job, my boss was a ham also. And he convinced me, he actually tricked me into going down to the field office, FCC field office in Dallas and, and taking the 13 words per minute code test. And uh, that's when I got my advanced class. And, you know, I, I was on CW for quite a few years. And then as soon as I got my advance, I put the key away and just did single sideband. <laughs> I remember when 13 words per minute was such a daunting idea. Yeah. I mean, even the five was, was scary to me. But this was all, I, I, I was getting into it after all of this had passed, but I I also like to know what my predecessors went through. And so I was reading about the 13 words per minute requirement. And yeah. I was like, can I do that? And it just seemed so impossible for me because I was struggling just even catching one letter at five words per minute. Yeah, and 13 words per minute when you got the the little FCC guy watching you as you're taking the exam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it sounded like it was 23 words per minute. Some test pressure there. You got someone over your shoulder. But fortunately, at at that time, it was was multiple choice. So you would just answer questions like, I remember as a five-element Yagi was part of the uh, thing that was sent to me, but I only got like the five and the EL and maybe the AGI, but it's close enough that I could answer the question that it was five-element Yagi, so it was good. But... You know, and then later I was doing single sideband and then in the mid to late eighties, I just kind of set everything aside and let my ticket lapse. And, um, so it wasn't until I was at the maker fair in 2017, I said there was some, um, volunteer examiners there and I thought, well, I'll just sit down and take the test and see. And I, I passed general and then I passed extra. And the nice thing was there was no code, but oh, yeah. I still remembered CW. But the thing was, I used, I thought, okay, now I got to start thinking about CW. And uh, I was still where I would write down each letter. And that's how I learned. Yeah. And it was the great thing about CW ops is it really forced you to do head copy. And for everybody out there that's starting in Morse code, don't write down the letters. Just do a head copy, no matter how hard it is. Even if you got to take notes afterwards, mm-hmm. uh, head copy from the very, very start. And it's a really hard habit to break when you're used to writing characters down. And so for even those who don't know what that means, head copying is basically translating in your head. Like as you hear the tones, the dits and does, you are kind of in real time well not kind of you are in real time associating that to letters and then what rob told us 
our instructor in CW Ops was that eventually uh, patterns of these characters start becoming words in our mind as we hear combinations. And I'm still getting there, a few here and there, but not quite there yet. And that's, pr- that's probably because of lack, to, lack of practice. I should be there by now. Yeah, I think it, it's like a foreign language. You just have to use it. And I can, you know, like you are, I can pick that up pretty easily. And some other things that we use during soda activations and chases, but other combinations can be can be hard. But anyway, so back, uh, I got my ticket and I didn't really know what to do. And it, you know, I'd been out of the Hamden for 20 or 20 years, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And things that changed. So the first two or three QST magazines I got, I just devoured. I just read everything I could, and including the ads and just trying to get up, up to date. And I don't know how I found out about soda. I have no idea. It might have been some of Jerry's uh, videos. Uh, I might have read an article about it. But as soon as I learned about it, I said, ah, that's what I got to do because I had already been hiking in the mountains a lot and I really liked hiking and I'm not as um, much of a hiking beast as uh, Adam or, or Rex yeah. are, yeah. but, uh, but it, it's something that I really enjoyed. And I thought, ah, that's gotta be, that's gotta be the thing to do. So I bought a KX2 and I bought a QRP random wire antenna. Good, good companions because you need a tuner with a random wire and the KX2 had the tuner. At least I bought it with it. And uh, it was sometime I had to go down to Joshua Tree National Park for a photography course. And it's like, oh, I'll just bring the stuff with me. And but there's a couple of peaks in the national park and I'll just go there. So my fir- very first peak was Ryan Mountain in Joshua Tree National Park. And I cool. got out there and and I I had already known that I had to spot myself. But I was like, oh man, um, I've been ca- or, or practicing Morse code, but I was still writing everything down. So I'm up on the mountain making contacts and you know how it is. It's amazing you spot yourself and all these people are just on top of you. Yeah. And I've never been part of a pileup like that. So I worked myself through that. And, but that's what really convinced me that I, I have to get my CW back, especially since it was 30 years from when I really was using a lot of CW. So that's how I got the idea of going to CW Ops. And it's great. I recommend CW Ops for, for anybody that wants to get their Morse code. Better. Are you planning to join? CW Ops Academy Level 3? If my CW Ops buddy Dennis comes with me. Oh, yeah. I'll take that. (laughs) If we, yeah, let's both sign up. I I just, uh, I need to really get back on the ball. But, yeah, that's, that's the one that we're in CWT quite a bit. And we will have to prove ourselves what, what does it go to 25 or 30 words per minute where we're yeah i think 30 30 words Something. per minute where we'll be practicing in that speed so that will Pretty be cool. a workout <laughs> yeah. 
I remember those classes for level two. I'd come out of them and I was tired. I, I was like actually physically exhausted from that. And I, I'd come out and I'd be like, wow, that was that was a, a brain workout right there. Oh, yeah. Morse Runner or the Rough Sea or whatever it's called. I can only do like 30 minutes of it. Then I'm, I'm just like shot. Yeah. And sometimes up on the mountain, you know, I'll be operating for an hour, but man, the last 15 or 20 minutes, uh, sometimes I just can't copy the calls real well, or I, my sending is bad. <laughs> I had, I had one last activation a couple of weeks ago. Somebody just sent back a question mark. So I had to send it all to him. <laughs> it's like, okay, I think this is time that I got QRT and get off the mountain. I'm just getting really. Hey, you just, uh, sent a long message and then all you get is, uh, did it, uh, did it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what the heck were you saying? What to did me? you just say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about our our joint activation on Rag Ridge. Now, this is uh, designator W6-NC343, and we had been talking for a while now about going on a joint activation, and finally we, we pinned a date, and that was, I think, in February. It was. And then... The day after Valentine's Day. I had to make sure it was okay with... Oh, okay. Yeah, and so we met up right before it, right before the actual area. Uh, I can't remember the exact town. And then we, then you drove over to the location where we would actually start. And I was, I was coming into this thinking, okay, we'll find a trailhead, and then we'll just work our way up this uh, peak, and hopefully it's not too steep. And then when we start. It, it it literally was, let's walk through this break in the barbed wire, and immediately it was super steep with no trail. <laughs> it was just literally the side of a mountain. Yeah. And then, you know, after a bit of struggle, and I videoed the struggle, um, we reached a trail, or more like a service road that was unused, and then had a nice leisure, leisurely pace to the rest, to the top. But you and I learned recently, I think you sent me a message and said, hey, guess what? Rag Ridge is now inaccessible. The property owner has said that he doesn't want people from our organization, our quote unquote organization, to go on the land and operate. And so I wanted to ask you how you felt about this banned peak. Now that now we, we're two rogues. We've activated a uh, private property peak. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say that if, if I had known that it was private property and and there was no trespass, and if there was no trespassing sign, we wouldn't have gone up because that for that day, I was actually thinking of another peak that was just, uh, I think, 100 yards down the road. And when I went yeah. into Google Street View, I saw that there was a nice, fresh, no trespassing sign on the route. So I was like, okay, we can't do that. 
And we did go through a break in the fence, but there was a trail kind of through that break. And, you know, when, when I'm out hiking, like in the, some of these state recreation areas, quite often you're going through old farmland and the state never took down the fence. You just got a break in the fence and you go through. So mm -hmm. I didn't really think that was, uh, that was private property. It's not like we had to climb over the fence or through the fence. Yeah. So I, I, we just have to make sure that in the future, I'll just do a little bit more investigation and make sure it's not private property. And, and we have to respect the, the property owner if they don't want us on the, on the property. Yeah, but absolutely. If, if I knew it was private property, then we would have done a different peak. I think the concern from the uh, message on the, the group's board that you shared was, you know, just liability and making sure that no one gets hurt while they're on the property. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense to me. Although in my case, if I set out to do something like that and hurt myself, I would not think about the landowner at all. <laughs> I would just be like, I messed up. I did this to myself, you know? <laughs> so... Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate that not everyone thinks that way and that, you know, the, the landowners have to sort of protect themselves, even though they have this land that is largely, largely unused. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, if, if I did something stupid and hurt myself, that's, it's up to me yeah. to take care of it on there. So I got a lot of good practice on that trip. I got to test out Gaia, the, the app that tracks your trail. And even something that simple, I know that we had roads and all that, but there was certain points in time where I was like, which way am I going? It's very yep. easy to get turned around. So I would just look back at my Gaia app and I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be going. I'm pointed the wrong way. I should be going this way. And also tested out my inReach, which I've talked to talked to about quite a bit. That was good for getting the tweets out. It's a good way to spot. Just indirectly, you can actually text someone, hey, can you spot me where... We're activating soon, but that was a fun trip. It's unfortunate yeah, it we really, can't do it again. Yeah, it was a pleasant day up there and really had fun. And we had the, uh, I downloaded the KLM file also. So we had the track. So yep. it was a little bit of bush, bushwhacking at the beginning and yep. blew up the hill, but it was worth it. It was a great day out there. Yeah, perfect weather. Speaking of your, your file, um, W6RIP shared uh, just a few weeks ago an app that he uses now that kind of redraws the path uh, on a on a video. I forget the name of it. I, I, if I find it, I'll I'll link it. But it, it's kind of cool. You can actually trace. It looks like Google Earth, and then you see your little arrow kind of traversing the trail. But it can import files like that. So. Yeah. I might do that for the, for our, our activation. Cool. Yeah. Almost every activation I do now, I'll either, if somebody else has a file online that I can download, I, I download that into my Gaia app and, uh, or if not, then I just try to figure out a route that's, that's close and, and put that in. And if it works out, then I usually post on my blog. Um, yep. You know, like Sand Ridge is a peak that I've done the last couple of years. And there was a, 
trail, I think from KU6J. And it was one way to get there. And it was my, I remember it was my first real bushwhacking uh, experience in Rex and and were kind of giving me a hard time about, you know, <laughs> get out there and do it. And I, I found my way, but I, I, um, I found an easier way. So there's actually two ways to get to Sand Ridge Peak. And I kind of feel like it's not my peak, but I'm the only one that's activated in the last couple of years. And the first act or last activation before that was 2017. So it's kind of fun to go up there and there's probably like, Probably anybody else that ever goes up on top of that peak. And yeah, that's cool. You should actually do the JerryNet thing and just call it Dan Peak after <laughs> after having activated it and no one else has, and just oh, just others, claim it. Put a little TM by it too. <laughs> others have activated it. So it was quite a few years ago. So it's just recent activity. I can't I can't claim it as a first act <laughs> for sure. But but I'm I'm the only one that's done it in recent history. In there so very cool but fun but you just learn i i like to you know a few things on the gia app i actually pay for the premium so i can download the maps on my phone so even if i'm out of cell coverage i still i can still get the maps and i think that's a real key i remember when i first started hiking i went on a trail it was off the pacific crest trail and all i had was my running shoes no trekking poles. And it was, man, the, it was just really, really steep and going mm. downhill. There's a couple of times I just had my life pass before me. I just, oh boy. it was just <laughs> really, really treacherous. Wow. And I didn't know where I was because all I had was Google maps and it wasn't on there. Oh, and okay. So I found my way back and I bought some decent boots. I bought trekking poles and we know yeah. Dennis that trekking poles are really good things. to Yes. Bring. I know this in a very, very personal way because <laughs> our activation at that start where we were climbing up to get to the service roads, I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm good. And you're like, you sure you here, here, have one of my trekking poles. I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm right. And then at a certain point, maybe two minutes in, <laughs> I said, give, give me that um, trekking. Give me both of them. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll take that now. I am really falling over here and sliding a lot. And uh, it, it was the it was the kind of steepness that had the all the fallen leaves on it too. So it was not only steep, but it was slippery because of yeah. the leaves. And yeah. that was quite an experience. So now my my trekking poles are always in my trunk now. And even if I don't think I need them, I, I will have them. <laughs> yeah. So the, the story, I, I went back this summer to that same trail with a little more experience and the right. Actually, I have some really cool uh, trail running shoes now that are really, really good. I really like and my trekking poles and the trail was tough, but it was I didn't see my life go before my eyes. Mm -hmm. I was I felt safe. And I had my Gia app with the maps downloaded. So I knew exactly where I was. And I actually found a new way to out of there into Basin Peak. And it was a great experience. It was fantastic. So be prepared. Yeah. If you're going to go out on the trails, you know, have the right, just don't wear sneakers, get some decent boots, some trekking poles, and just make sure you know where you're going to go. Yeah. And then 
everything's good. And that was, that was a fantastic, it was 180 degrees from my experience a few years before that. So very was, cool. It was great. Yeah. So let me jump over to your remote station. I wanted to talk about that a little bit because like you said, we have very similar rigs, but you have a very interesting remote station. Can you tell us how you conceived of that idea? It's literally, you don't see your rig at all unless you have to go to it. So tell right. us a little bit more about that. Yeah, in fact, you can see some photos on my QRZ page. So it all came down. And I said to my wife, you know, I'd like to put an antenna up, decent one. And she said, not in our yard. And my mother-in-law actually lives next door. And we have some acreage and she has some acreage. So it's the usual thing. Just put it over in her place. So <laughs> <laughs> Just put it that's over okay. in her place. I like yeah, that. Yeah. And that's okay. Because I actually have Wi-Fi over there. I have, well, I have Ethernet dropped over there and Wi-Fi. And so out of necessity, the Flex and my, I have a uh, big IR from Stepper Vertical. And so I had the control box and a couple enclosures outside next to the shed. So I, obviously I couldn't be out there fiddling with the knobs and things like that. So the flex is a great, the 6400 is great. It, you can do whatever you need to through a, a LAN connection. That, that was fine, but I really didn't want to have the rig running all the time. Because basically when you've got to have it powered up so you can access it, whether it's through the Maestro or through Smart SDR. So I said, well, you know, I'll just build something that will power the rig up and down. And fortunately, the 6400 has a connection on the back that all you got to do is give it a, is either a low or high to turn it on or off. And I Ethernet out there. So I said, well, you know, let's figure out how we do this. So I went through and looked at a bunch of apps and I decided to use a Telegram app, which is basically a messaging app, app that you can send messages and commands from your cell phone or from your PC or tablet. And people have, they had an API and people have written uh, modules for Arduino and uh, Raspberry Pi so that you can put the Telegram bot right on your Raspberry Pi and it will respond to the messages that you send to it. So I just did a Raspberry Pi Zero um, out in the enclosures and um, made it and put a bot in there so that I can message with my phone to turn the rig on and off and also monitor whether the rig is on because you know even though you think you turn it on you don't know if you really turn it on or not and i also have temperature midi sensors out there because as you know dennis it gets really really hot here yeah so uh, like this weekend's going to be really really hot and i'll for sure shut the radio down at times because it's just too hot out there for it to be operating mm -hmm. even in the enclosure and what was really surprising to me was in the winter because I do have some vent holes on the enclosure, the humidity actually goes almost to 100% in the enclosure when we have all the fog and, and rain and stuff. So I actually have to have the rig on most of the winter just to keep the enclosure, the humidity uh, drier. So, so are you using the rig to actually reduce 
the humidity through its heat generation. Yep. Nice. Yep. <laughs> I've always called uh, ham gear uh, modified heater, you know, heaters, because yeah. it's just like PCs, you know, if you want the performance of an amp or a rig, you, you're going to generate quite a bit of heat as well. <laughs> so, so Dennis, have you ever had a tube, use a tube rig? No, I have. Well, I've had the tube amps for for audio equipment, yeah. so I, I know that they do get pretty hot. Uh, but I've never worked with a radio that uses vacuum tubes. Yeah, that gets really hot. So, I mean, my first transmitters and transceivers were all tubes, and and I still that's one thing I like to do is I rebuild and rework old vintage radios when I have time from my other projects. Yep. Fun, fun to do. So but anyway, back to the, the, the remote station. So yeah, it works out well. I can, I can tell what the temperature MIDI is from as long as I have internet connection, I can be on the other side of the world and see if my, my rig is up and turn on and off. And there's a lot of IOs on the Raspberry Pi zero. So in the future, I may be switch using it to switch antennas. Ah, uh, yes. One thing I want to do is I, I uh, want to put an NFED half wave up at 80 through 10, but there's a way of switching it so that it, it turns into, you can load it as a 160 meter uh, quarter wave. Oh, okay. As long as you've got enough radials and stuff like that. And I've got the room that I can do that. And I just have some trees pruned and serviced. So I had when the pay when the tree guys to, shimmy up a tree about 50 feet. So I have a, a pulley and Dacron rope up there. So now I can hang my half wave up high. And that's what you want. Yeah. Um, you want the copper, you want copper as high as you can. And, and I see that difference like on my vertical, but the step IR, they've got the copper brilliant uh, strap or whatever it's called. It goes up and down and so like on 15 meters and and above, you can put in a three-quarter wave mode. So you've got it almost fully extended up 33 feet. And it's it's really incredible how much better you can receive when you've got a 30-plus 30 foot of copper in the air versus 10 feet. Yeah. And it so it's pretty cool. And sometimes I'll be, I'll have the, antenna in the 40 meter configuration so it's fully extended and i'll be listening to somebody on 20 meters and i can hear them but if if i want to chase them then i gotta retune the antenna down to 20 meters and it's shorter and 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 a lot of times i just can't hear them anymore because i don't have it's not not enough copper yeah, out there in it's the not high enough yeah have so you, i'm really have you excited. ever noticed if verticals in particular because you say you have the big ir by um, Step IR yeah. or Stepper. I don't know how to pronounce their name, but. Uh, always Stepper to me. Yeah. Stepper. Do you notice more noise on a vertical versus yeah. a horizontal? That's, yeah. that's, that's something that I kind of noticed, but I wasn't sure if it was just my setup. Yeah, but we're, we're remote. We're remote enough that the noise isn't bad, but it definitely compared to the horizontal and, and I'm looking forward to that with the halfway if I have a substantial horizontal 
there'll still be some vertical, but there'll be horizontal. But it depends, you know, if my if the sun's out and my neighbor's um, inverters are throwing out some trash, then I have a little higher noise level. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's just living in urban area. It, that's the nice thing about soda. You're up on a 9,000 foot peak. And yes. as long as you have a bunch of cell towers, um, it's a really, really quiet. Yeah. It's nice. I was talking with another, another guest um, and he was commenting on the noise floor up on the peaks. So have you ever had it where your radio, you thought your radio was broken because it was just too quiet? <laughs> um, you know, on the KX2, no, because I can usually put the preamp on and hear enough noise and stuff. But yeah. the, the mountain topper, sometimes I'm going, God, is anybody around? So I always <laughs> tune up to, to the FT8 bands, you know, where the frequencies where everybody's throwing all the digital trash. And I can usually hear something there. I go, okay, yeah. okay, okay it works. It's working. <laughs> that's, but, that's a good verification uh, method. Just throw it on FT8 and see if you get some of the sounds. Exactly, and and but you know you'll spot yourself, and then you throw a couple CQs, and there there's a there's always a lag time lag between when people see your spot and they start responding. Yeah, and I'm. Always Oh man, did I hike three and a half hours and nobody's going to contact me? <laughs> well, my problem is I'm normally on, you know, I'm, I'm doing something and I'll pick up the ham alert whenever I notice my phone and look at it because I don't have it actively making noise most of the day. And then I'll be like, oh man, Dan was on. And this ham alert just came like an hour and a half ago. So he is not still there. I, I, that's happened more times than not. And I always kick myself. I just, uh, now I put my phone like kind of right in front of me. So it will, it will light up if something's going on with ham alert. But you never know, you know, the peaks that I've got cell coverage on, I usually are, I'm looking at Slack also. So you can always try to message me and like, um, the one I did earlier this week, Tinker Knob, I was actually up there for two hours. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was like, okay, I got to get back and hike back so that I'm hiking in daylight. Yeah. But if I know somebody is, is looking, so you never know, even if it's an hour later, I might still be up on the peak and you can send me a message and just see, yeah. but you know, it, it takes a while to set up, but usually I'm taking photographs when I set up and when I take down, you know, I'll just kind of, it, it's just so beautiful up there and cool. And like on Tinker, I could see Granite Chief, which I had activated the week before. And then you turn the other way, you can see Castle Peak, which I'm going to go and activate in another week or two. And then I then you look between those two and you can see North Star and, and the three peaks along North Star that I had activated. It's just fun. It's just so beautiful and and nice out there. And it's so and it's really, really special. In the in the line of like Adam, Rex, Charlie, and other soda activators, are you one to do multiple peaks on a single trip? Have you have you done more than one before? Yeah, I've done more than one. I'm I'm not the soda beast that they are, and I'm not even close to being mountain goat. Mountain goat is just to get a thousand points activating is is a is a big deal. 
Yeah. I mean, well, right around us, it's mostly one pointers, right? So <laughs> yeah, that would and, be a thousand uh, one pointers. <laughs> exactly. And, and the peaks I do up in the Sierra are eight pointers. So that's 125 point uh, peaks. Yeah. Still significant. Yeah. So it, it really depends. So there's, there's some peaks that you can do like Tinker Knob takes me three and a half hours just to hike to the, to it and three and a half hours back. So that's a day for me. And I, I just do day hikes. I don't camp and I probably should if I, I'm, if I'm really a soda person, but I just don't, but there are some peaks like um, Mount Lincoln. And then there's uh, right next to it on Donner ski Ranch is uh, it just has a number I think they call it Signal Hill also. And you can do that and you can do those two peaks in a day. Mm-hmm. And then the ones by North Star is uh, Mount Watson Road. And there's three peaks that you could do in a full day. I, I only did two because I was meeting my wife for our anniversary that weekend. So it was more important that I met her on time and yes. spent the weekend together. Priorities. And, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And then um, I did the third peak after after the weekend. So that one you could definitely do probably three peaks in one day if you get yeah. up there early. So, yeah, so there are some. But uh, well, think, yeah. when we did Rag Ridge uh, afterwards, we made it back to the car. And at certain points, I had to slide down in some <laughs> some parts, but you weren't watching. So I was like, oh, OK, at least I can save face here. <laughs> But um, then we hopped in your car and you're like, I want to check out another entry point. And so I was thinking in the back of my mind that I was like, are we going to do two peaks today? (laughs) Now, it was a little bit later in the day, but I was thinking, if Dan wants to do another peak, I'm game. I just know I'm going to be beat. I'm going to be horribly tired after all (laughs) this is over. But actually, we just checked out the entrance. I think you were planning your next trip. (laughs) And I had both relief and disappointment, if there's a such (laughs) thing, because, yeah, I was I I had the bug. I was so stoked to have done that that activation that I was thinking I I would love to continue doing this. So I think if we had it was February, so you only have so much daylight. And I think if we had started a little earlier and maybe taking a little less time on Ray Ridge, we, we could have done both peaks, but yeah, you know, for me, I, I like to make sure that I work all the chasers. And when we were up there, we were busy with all the chasers pretty much all the time. So, um, I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not usually, I don't just get my four faces and then, then get off the peak. I, I really want to work as many chasers as possible. And I, I really appreciate the chasers and, and I like to chase at times. And um, so without chasers, we can't activate and without activators, you can't chase. So yeah. if somebody wants to contact me, I'll, I'll be there. And, you know, if, if you're hiking in three or four hours, you want to make a few contacts. Yeah, there. exactly. You're the one who told me that Scott was on another peak and we both did summit to summit contacts, which I, I never thought I would do, but that was cool. Got him on yeah. CW and, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird when you're, when you're up there 
inevitably there's someone else on another peak somewhere that um, kind of coincides. And we were, I think that was in the afternoon. We were there like maybe two o'clock in the afternoon, which yeah. in my experience is a little late for activators. They like to go in the mornings or early before the sun gets really hot. But again, it was February. So yeah, I guess that's normal. But yeah, it, was, it was cool it was, to catch Scott that one time. Yeah, it was great that we did that peak when we did because COVID came and um, pretty much shut things down. So yeah, that's a good it, transition too. I wanted to ask you, how has COVID and the shutdown affected your operation in ham radio? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I think there's good and bad. Um, the good thing is I actually start chasing more. So I, especially at the very beginning, I was really leery about going, going out and hiking a lot because everybody was home from work and they were all on the trails and I didn't want to be on the trails with them. So I just stayed home and, and, and I would chase. So it really got me into chasing. So that was a good thing. Probably the bad thing, um, the, the makerspace that I belong to, they basically got shut down and, so, you know, I miss some of the people I used to hang out with and I can't use, there is a period there, still, still, still the period that I can't use a lot of the equipment and the location that was closest to me is shut down permanently because with COVID and everything, mm -hmm. they just had to consolidate. So that was, that was a bad thing. Yeah. Unfortunate. Uh, yeah. Unfortunate. And when I, uh, made your enclosure for the clock. There was like a two week period where we were allowed to use the equipment if we were fully masked and took all the right precautions and it got shut down right after that. So you're lucky you got your clock. So I have a collector's clock, probably yeah, one of a kind. One of a kind, that's for sure. <laughs> it's cool. Right. The acrylic enclosure has, um, your call sign etched into it has mine and yep. see through. So you see all the internals, how it's working and some cool toggle switches for different modes. It's a really cool thing. I will link your, your blog description and kind of process for making this clock in the show notes so people can see what it looks like. But yeah. I really appreciate that. That was more of, the story behind that was it was kind of a barter right between us yeah i got a really cool 3d printed paddle which i use almost exclusively the, uh, from you yeah i actually didn't even put it together for you that's how how <laughs> bad i am <laughs> i just that's said uh, i don't know when i can put this together so are you okay with the parts and you're like yeah i'll put it together so I definitely think I, I made the better, I got out better in this barter trade well, deal. You know, the, a barter never ends. So. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I love the clock. It's great. And um, it, I have it and it's it's on. And every once in a while they'll say, okay, this contest is this time UTC. And I just turn my head, look at look at the clock you made. And I know when that will be or how far away that is. So it's really cool. And, and that clock project really came out of the makerspace. They had a bunch of parts that were given to them. And the, um, 
kind of had a tech guy said, well, these look really cool. How do you use them? And that, that was the big LCDs. And I said, oh, I'll figure it out. So, so I did and had some fun with it. Yeah. Really cool. So any advice you have for people? Anything you want to mention? Oh, well, make sure you check for private property before you do a solar activation. <laughs> One thing. Yes. Seriously. Seriously. Yeah. We kind of joked a little bit about it, but it's, it's really good to respect other people's property and we don't want to give soda a bad name. And just like when you're on top of a peak, just don't leave anything behind. Just leave it as it was. Definitely. Yeah. But, you know, I think the, I, one of the things that I really like to, that I work on and do some things with some nonprofits and things is get kids interested in STEM and ham radio is one way to do it. Or if it's just coding or, or, you know, playing with an Arduino or Raspberry Pi or, or whatever, or maybe they're really into music or something like that, but just help people, especially kids just get interested in different, different hobbies and different pursuits. And you never know what will come up, but just, you know, this crazy fifth grader back in Wisconsin, many, many decades ago, more decades than I want to admit, <laughs> you know, took his sister's record player and took it apart and oh, got yes. in trouble. <laughs> part of how we, there's something to that because I got in trouble a lot for, for basically destroying things as well. I, I do remember getting yelled at uh, for many things. I've taken clocks apart, radios, various um, valuable items <laughs> just to see how they work. And yep. some of the time I was able to put them back together without anyone noticing, but most of the time not. And yeah, it's definitely important to encourage that curiosity yeah, and we just need to get more kids interested in things. And, you know, for me, I'm a little biased towards STEM, but if somebody's really interested in music or art or photography, just help them out. And I think that's something that we can do as, you know, being part of the older generation is uh, just help guide some of the kids to something that they really aspire to. And maybe uh, proud to do something they're not comfortable with doing. Yeah, totally great advice. Well, Dan, thank you very much for being on the show today. You know, Dennis, we need to find somebody to interview you because yes. I think you have a lot of interesting things. <laughs> <in the background. laughs> yeah, I have thoughts on that. Maybe like a cross interview with yeah. someone, uh, someone active uh, on maybe the YouTube platforms. And we could, I can, he can live stream while. I ask my questions or something like that. I don't know, but yeah, I've, won't, I've thought about be, it. That won't be me. I'm, I haven't produced any videos. I, I like watching the videos. You know, I like, um, especially some of the sort of contacts and things, but, um, yeah, I, well, I, you're I, definitely one of the other mad scientists that I think of when, when putting something, something together or have a design in mind, 
and you always chime in on recommendations when people are making more than people want. (laughs) No, (laughs) everyone is throwing around these designs for like half squares and different antennas and, and even programming things. And, and you always have some good insights. You know, I think that's one other thing that I like to just throw out there and then we'll let you uh, cut me off is, you know, if you do an experiment or find something really interesting, uh, publish it. So like, you know, earlier this spring, I did some work on the uh, NFED half-wave matching transformer and the role of the primary capacitor. And, you know, the YouTube videos are great, but a lot of times it's just good to have the data and and the conclusions. And, you know, I I just recently got a comment on one of my blogs from uh, Danny of My Antennas, E73M. I mean, that's a great call. Wouldn't you like to have a call E73M? Yes. Uh, you're missing some data, so I got to do some more data. But I think it's really important that if you build something or have an experiment, publish it and actually publish the data and, and your conclusions so people can look at it and maybe reproduce it or have some questions or, or add to it. Yeah, definitely. All right, Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. I'll catch you yeah. on Slack. 73. <laughs> 73. Once again, you've been listening to Hamden Thoughts. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again next time.